listening to Nightlight. Hi, and welcome to the second Christmas edition of the Nightlight podcast. And we're going to be taking a close look at the nativity story through the eyes of J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was a 19th century English writer and clergyman, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, and his expositions of the four Gospels are absolutely among the best Bible commentaries that I've ever read. On this show, I'm going to share with you J.C. Ryle's meditations on four of the nativity stories from Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And I think you will really enjoy these and draw some deep new lessons and insights from these Christmas stories that we know so well. I'll first play the passage from my reading of the King James Bible, and then that will be followed by J.C. Ryle's Exposition. Enjoy. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We have in these verses the story of a birth, the birth of the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every birth of a living child is a marvelous event. It brings into being a soul that will never die. But never since the world began was a birth so marvelous as the birth of Christ. In itself, it was a miracle. God was manifest in the flesh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The blessings it brought into the world were unspeakable. It opened to man the door of everlasting life. In reading these verses, let us first notice the times when Christ was born. It was in the days when Augustus, the first Roman emperor, made a decree that all the world should be taxed. The wisdom of God appears in this simple fact. The scepter was practically departing from Judah, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The Jews were coming under the dominion and taxation of a foreign power. Strangers were beginning to rule over them. They had no longer a really independent government of their own. The due time had come for the promised Messiah to appear. Augustus taxes the world. And at once, Christ is born. It was a time peculiarly suitable for the introduction of Christ's gospel. The whole civilized earth was at length governed by one master. There was nothing to prevent the preacher of a new faith going from city to city and country to country. The princes and priests of the heathen world had been weighed in the balances and found lacking. 
Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome had all successively proved that the world, by wisdom, knew not God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Notwithstanding their mighty conquerors and poets and historians and architects and philosophers, the kingdoms of the world were full of dark idolatry. It was indeed due time for God to interpose from heaven and send down an almighty Savior. It was due time for Christ to be born. Let us ever rest our souls on the thought that times are in God's hand. Psalm 31 verse 15. He knows the best season for sending help to his church and new light to the world. Let us beware of giving way to over-anxiety about the course of events around us as if we knew better than the King of Kings what time relief should come. Cease, Philip, to try to govern the world, was a frequent saying of Luther to an anxious friend. It was a saying full of wisdom. Let us notice, secondly, the place where Christ was born. It was not at Nazareth of Galilee, where his mother the Virgin Mary lived. The prophet Micah had foretold that the event was to take place at Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And so it came to pass, at Bethlehem Christ was born. The overruling providence of God appears in this simple fact. He orders all things in heaven and earth. He turns the hearts of kings wherever he will. He overruled the time when Augustus decreed the taxing. He directed the enforcement of the decree in such a way that Mary must needs be at Bethlehem when the time came for the baby to be born. Little did the haughty Roman emperor and his officer Cyrenius think that they were only instruments in the hand of the God of Israel and were only carrying out the eternal purposes of the King of Kings. Little did they think that they were helping to lay the foundation of a kingdom before which the empires of this world would all go down one day and Roman idolatry pass away. The words of Isaiah upon a like occasion should be remembered. He means not so, neither does his heart think so. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 7. The heart of a believer should take comfort in the recollection of God's providential government of the world. A true Christian should never be greatly moved or disturbed by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. He should see with the eye of faith a hand overruling all that they do to the praise and glory of God. He should regard every king and potentate, an Augustus, a Cyrenius, a Darius, a Cyrus, a Sennacherib, as a creature who, with all his power, can do nothing but what God allows, and nothing which is not carrying out God's will. And when the rulers of this world set themselves against the Lord, 
he should take comfort in the words of Solomon. There is one higher than they. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8. Let us notice lastly the manner in which Christ was born. He was not born under the roof of his mother's house, but in a strange place and at an inn. When born, he was not laid in a carefully prepared cradle. He was laid in a manger, that is, a feeding trough for the cattle, because there was no room in the inn. We see here the grace and condescension of Christ. Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we would have had reason enough to wonder. But to become poor, as the very poorest of mankind, and lowly, as the very lowliest, this is a love that passes knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. Never let us forget that through this humiliation, Jesus has purchased for us a title to glory. Through his life of suffering as well as his death, he has obtained eternal redemption for us. All through his life, he was poor for our sakes, from the hour of his birth to the hour of his death. And through his poverty, we are made rich. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Let us beware of despising the poor because of their poverty. Their condition is one which the Son of God has sanctified and honored by taking it voluntarily on himself. God is no respecter of people. He looks at the hearts of men and not at their incomes. Let us never be ashamed of the affliction of poverty if God thinks fit to lay it upon us. To be godless and covetous is disgraceful, but it is no disgrace to be poor. A lowly dwelling place and coarse food and a hard bed are not pleasing to flesh and blood, but they are the portion which the Lord Jesus himself willingly accepted from the day of his entrance into this world. Wealth ruins far more souls than poverty. When the love of money begins to creep over us, let us think of the manger at Bethlehem and of him who was laid in it. Such thoughts may deliver us from much harm. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, 
and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, being interpreted, is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. These verses begin by telling us two great truths. They tell us how the Lord Jesus Christ took our nature upon him and became man. They tell us also that his birth was miraculous. His mother Mary was a virgin. These are very mysterious subjects. They are depths which we have no line to fathom. They are truths which we have not mind enough to comprehend. Let us not attempt to explain things which are above our feeble reason. Let us be content to believe with reverence and not speculate about matters which we cannot understand. Enough for us to know that with him who made the world, nothing is impossible. Let us rest in the words of the Apostles' Creed. Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Let us observe the conduct of Joseph described in these verses. It is a beautiful example of godly wisdom and tender consideration for others. He saw the appearance of evil in her who was his espoused wife, but he did nothing rashly. He waited patiently to have the line of duty made clear. In all probability, he laid the matter before God in prayer. He who believes shall not be in haste. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. The patience of Joseph was graciously rewarded. He received a direct message from God upon the subject of his anxiety and was at once relieved from all his fears. How good it is to wait upon God. Who ever cast his cares upon God in hearty prayer and found him fail? In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Proverbs 3, verse 6. Let us observe the two names given to our Lord in these verses. One is Jesus, the other Emmanuel. One describes his office, the other his nature. Both are deeply interesting. The name Jesus means Savior. It is the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. It is given to our Lord because he saves his people from their sins. This is his special office. He saves them from the guilt of sin by washing them in his own atoning blood. He saves them from the dominion of sin by putting in their hearts the sanctifying spirit. He saves them from the presence of sin when he takes them out of this world to rest with him. He will save them from all the consequences of sin when he shall give them a glorious body at that last day.
blessed and holy are Christ's people. From sorrow, cross and conflict, they are not saved, but they are saved from sin forevermore. They are cleansed from guilt by Christ's blood. They are made fit for heaven by Christ's spirit. This is salvation. Jesus is a very encouraging name to heavy-laden sinners. He who is King of kings and Lord of lords might lawfully have taken some more high-sounding title, but he does not do so. The rulers of this world have often called themselves great, conquerors, bold, magnificent, and the like. The Son of God is content to call himself Saviour. The souls which desire salvation may draw near to the Father with boldness and have access with confidence through Christ. It is his office and his delight to show mercy. For God didn't send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. John chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus is a name which is peculiarly sweet and precious to all believers. It has often done them good when the favor of kings and princes would have been heard of with unconcern. It has given them what money cannot buy, even inward peace. It has eased their wearied consciences and given rest to their heavy hearts. The Song of Solomon speaks of the experience of many when it says, your name is oil poured forth. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 3. Happy is that person who trusts not merely in vague notions of God's mercy and goodness, but in Jesus. The other name in these verses is scarcely less interesting than that just referred to. It is the name which is given to our Lord from his nature, as God manifest in the flesh. He is called Emmanuel, God with us. Let us take care that we have clear views of our Lord Jesus Christ's nature and person. It is a point of the deepest importance. We should settle it firmly in our minds that our Saviour is perfect man as well as perfect God, and perfect God as well as perfect man. If we once lose sight of this great foundation truth, we may run into fearful heresies. The name Emmanuel takes in the whole mystery. Jesus is God with us. He had a nature like our own in all things, sin only excepted. But though Jesus was with us in human flesh and blood, he was at the same time very God. We shall often find, as we read the Gospels, that our Saviour could be weary and hungry and thirsty, could weep and groan and feel pain like one of ourselves, in all this we see the man, Christ Jesus. We see the nature he took on him 
when he was born of the Virgin Mary. But we shall also find in the same Gospels that our Saviour knew men's hearts and thoughts, that he had power over devils, that he could work the mightiest of miracles with a word, that he was ministered to by angels, that he allowed a disciple to call him my God, and that he said, before Abraham was, I am, and I and my Father are one. In all this, we see the eternal God. We see him who is over all, God, blessed forever. Amen. Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Would you have a strong foundation for your faith and hope? Then keep in constant view your Savior's divinity. He in whose blood you are taught to trust is the Almighty God. All power is His in heaven and earth. None can pluck you out of His hand. If you are a true believer in Jesus, let not your heart be troubled or afraid. Would you have sweet comfort in suffering and trial? Then keep in constant view your Savior's humanity. He is the man, Christ Jesus, who lay on the bosom of the Virgin Mary as a little infant and knows the heart of man. He can be touched with the feeling of your infirmities. He has himself experienced Satan's temptations. He has endured hunger. He has shed tears. He has felt pain. Trust him at all times with your sorrows. He will not despise you. Pour out all your heart before him in prayer and keep nothing back. He can sympathize with his people. Let these thoughts sink down into our minds. Let us bless God for the encouraging truths which the first chapter of the New Testament contains. It tells us of one who saves his people from their sins. But this is not all. It tells us that this Savior is Emmanuel, God himself and yet God with us. God manifest in human flesh like our own. This is glad tidings. This is indeed good news. Let us feed on these truths in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 
And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. We read in these verses how the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was first announced to the children of men. The birth of a king's son is generally made an occasion of public reveling and rejoicing. The announcement of the birth of the Prince of Peace was made privately at midnight and without anything of worldly pomp and ostentation. Let us mark who they were, to whom the tidings first came that Christ was born. They were shepherds, abiding in the field near Bethlehem, keeping watch over their flocks by night. To shepherds, not to priests and rulers, to shepherds, not to scribes and Pharisees, an angel appeared, proclaiming, Unto you is born this day a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. The saying of James should come into our mind as we read these words. Has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? James chapter 2, verse 5. The lack of money debars no one from spiritual privileges. The things of God's kingdom are often hidden from the great and noble and revealed to the poor. The busy labor of the hands need not prevent a man being favored with special communion with God. Moses was keeping sheep. Gideon was threshing wheat. Elisha was plowing when they were each honored by direct calls and revelations from God. Let us resist the suggestion of Satan that religion is not for the working man. The weak of the world are often called before the mighty. The last are often first, and the first last. Let us mark, secondly, the language used by the angel in announcing Christ's birth to the shepherds. He said, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. We need not wonder at these words. The spiritual darkness which had covered the earth for 4,000 years was about to be rolled away. The way to pardon and peace with God was about to be thrown open to all mankind. The head of Satan was about to be crushed. Liberty was about to be proclaimed to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. The mighty truth was about to be proclaimed that God could be just, and yet for Christ's sake, justify the ungodly. 
Salvation was no longer to be seen through types and figures, but openly and face to face. The knowledge of God was no longer to be confined to the Jews, but to be offered to the whole Gentile world. The days of heathenism were numbered. The first stone of God's kingdom was about to be set up. If this was not good tidings, there never were tidings that deserved the name. Let us mark thirdly who they were that first praised God when Christ was born. They were angels, and not men, angels who had never sinned and needed no Savior, angels who had not fallen and required no Redeemer and no atoning blood. The first hymn to the honor of God manifest in the flesh was sung by a multitude of the heavenly host. Let us note this fact. It is full of deep spiritual lessons. It shows us what good servants the angels are. All that their heavenly master does pleases and interests them. It shows what clear knowledge they have. They know what misery sin has brought into creation. They know the blessedness of heaven and the privilege of an open door into it. Above all, it shows us the deep love and compassion which the angels feel towards poor lost man. They rejoice in the glorious prospect of many souls being saved and many brands plucked from the burning. Let us strive to be more like-minded with the angels. Our spiritual ignorance and deadness appear most painfully in our inability to enter into the joy which we see them here expressing. Surely, if we hope to dwell with them forever in heaven, we ought to share something of their feelings while we are here upon earth. Let us seek a more deep sense of the sinfulness and misery of sin, and then we shall have a more deep sense of thankfulness for redemption. Let us mark fourthly the hymn of praise which the heavenly host sung in the hearing of the shepherds. They said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards man. These famous words are variously interpreted. Man is by nature so dull in spiritual things that it seems as if he cannot understand a sentence of heavenly language when he hears it. Yet a meaning may be drawn from the words which is free from any objection and is not only good sense but excellent theology. Glory to God in the highest, the song begins. Now is come the highest degree of glory to God by the appearing of his Son, Jesus Christ, in the world. He, by his life and death on the cross, will glorify God's attributes, justice, holiness, mercy, and wisdom, as they never were glorified before. Creation glorified God, but not so much as redemption. Peace on earth, the song goes on. Now is come to earth the peace of God, which passes all understanding. 
the perfect peace between a holy God and sinful man, which Christ was to purchase with his own blood, the peace which is offered freely to all mankind, the peace which, once admitted into the heart, makes men live at peace with one another and will one day overspread the whole world. Goodwill towards men, the song concludes, now is come the time when God's goodness and goodwill towards guilty man is to fully be made known. His power was seen in creation, his justice was seen in the flood, but his mercy remained to be fully revealed by the appearing and atonement of Jesus Christ. Such was the purport of the angel's song. Happy are they that can enter into its meaning and with their hearts subscribe to its contents. The man who hopes to dwell in heaven should have some acquaintance with the language of its inhabitants. Let us mark, before we leave the passage, the prompt obedience to the heavenly vision displayed by the shepherds. We see in them no doubts or questionings or hesitation. Strange and improbable as the tidings might seem, they at once act upon them. They went to Bethlehem in haste. They found everything exactly as it had been told them. Their simple faith received a rich reward. They had the mighty privilege of being the first of all mankind, after Mary and Joseph, who saw with believing eyes the newborn Messiah. They soon returned, glorifying and praising God for what they had seen. May our spirits be like theirs. May we ever believe implicitly, act promptly, and wait for nothing when the path of duty is clear. So doing, we shall have a reward like that of the shepherds. The journey that is begun in faith will generally end in praise. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when he have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, 
And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. It is not known who these wise men were. Their names and dwelling place are alike kept back from us. We're only told that they came from the east. Whether they were Chaldeans or Arabians, we cannot say. Whether they had learned to expect Christ from the ten tribes who went into captivity or from the prophecies of Daniel, we do not know. It matters little who they were. The point which concerns us most is the rich instruction which their history conveys. These verses show us that there may be true servants of God in places where we should not expect to find them. The Lord Jesus has many hidden ones like these wise men. Their history on earth may be as little known as that of Melchizedek and Jethro and Job, but their names are in the book of life and they will be found with Christ in the day of his appearing. It is well to remember this. We must not look around the earth and say hastily all is barren. The grace of God is not tied to places and families. The Holy Spirit can lead souls to Christ without the help of many outward means. Men may be born in dark places of the earth, like these wise men, and yet, like them, be made wise unto salvation. There are some traveling to heaven at this moment of whom the church and the world know nothing. They flourish in secret places, like the lily among the thorns, and waste their sweetness on the desert air. But Christ loves them, and they love Christ. These verses teach us that it is not always those who have the most religious privileges who give Christ most honor. We might have thought that the scribes and Pharisees would have been the first to hasten to Bethlehem on the lightest rumor that the Savior was born. But it was not so. A few unknown strangers from a distant land were the first, except for the shepherds mentioned by Luke, to rejoice at his birth. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. What a mournful picture this is of human nature. How often the same kind of thing may be seen among ourselves. How often the very people who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them most. There is only too much truth in the old proverb, the nearer the church, the further from God. Familiarity with sacred things has a dreadful tendency to make men despise them. 
There are many who, from residence and convenience, ought to be the first and foremost in the worship of God, and yet are always last. There are many who might well be expected to be last, who are always first. These verses teach us that there may be knowledge of Scripture in the head, while there is no grace in the heart. Mark how King Herod sent to inquire of the priests and elders where the Christ would be born. Mark what a ready answer they return him, and what an acquaintance with the letter of Scripture they show. But they never went to Bethlehem to seek for the coming Saviour. They would not believe in him when he ministered among them. Their heads were better than their hearts. Let us all beware of resting satisfied with head knowledge. It is an excellent thing when rightly used, but a man may have much of it and yet perish everlastingly. What is the state of our hearts? This is the great question. A little grace is better than many gifts. Gifts alone save no one, but grace leads on to glory. Behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there till I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, in Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted, because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. The conduct of the wise men described in this chapter is a splendid example of spiritual diligence. What trouble it must have cost them to travel from their homes to the place where Jesus was born. 
how many weary miles they must have journeyed. The fatigues of an eastern traveller are far greater than we in England can at all understand. The time that such a journey would occupy must necessarily have been very great. The dangers to be encountered were neither few nor small. But none of these things moved them. They had set their hearts on seeing him who was born king of the Jews, and they never rested until they saw him. They proved to us the truth of the old saying, where there is a will, there is a way. It would be well for all professing Christians if they were more ready to follow the wise men's example. Where is our self-denial? What pains do we take about our souls? What diligence do we show about following Christ? What does our religion cost us? These are serious questions. They deserve serious consideration. Last but not least, the conduct of the wise men is a striking example of faith. They believed in Christ when they had never seen him, but that was not all. They believed in him when the scribes and Pharisees were unbelieving, but that again was not all. They believed in him when they saw him a little infant on Mary's knee and worshipped him as a king. This was the crowning point of their faith. They saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak, and needing a mother's care like any one of ourselves. And yet, when they saw that infant, they believed that they saw the divine Savior of the world. They fell down and worshipped him. We read of no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible. It is a faith that deserves to be placed side by side with that of the penitent thief. The thief saw one dying the death of a malefactor and yet prayed to him and called him Lord. The wise men saw a newborn babe on the lap of a poor woman and yet worshipped him and confessed that he was Christ. Blessed indeed are those that can believe in this fashion. This is the kind of faith, let us remember, that God delights to honour. We see the proof of that this very day. Wherever the Bible is read, the conduct of these wise men is known and told as a memorial of them. Let us walk in the steps of their faith. Let us not be ashamed to believe in Jesus and confess him, though all around us remain careless and unbelieving. Have we not a thousandfold more evidence than the wise men had to make us believe that Jesus is the Christ? Beyond doubt we have. Yet, where is our faith? Observe in this passage how true it is that the rulers of this world are seldom friendly 
to the cause of God. The Lord Jesus comes down from heaven to save sinners, and at once we're told that Herod the king sought to destroy him. Greatness and riches are perilous possessions for the soul. They know not what they seek who seek to have them. They lead men into many temptations. They are likely to fill the heart with pride and chain the affections down to things below. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. A rich man will enter into the kingdom of heaven with difficulty. Do you envy the rich and great? Does your heart say, Oh, that I had their place and rank and substance? Beware of giving way to the feeling. The very wealth which you admire may be gradually sinking its possessor down into hell. A little more money might be your ruin. Like Herod, you might run into every excess of wickedness and cruelty. Take heed and beware of covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Do you think that Christ's cause depends on the power and patronage of princes? You are mistaken. They have seldom done much for the advancement of true religion. They have far more frequently been the enemies of the truth. Put not your trust in princes. Those who are like Herod are many. Observe how the Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows, even from his infancy. Trouble awaits him as soon as he enters into the world. His life is in danger from Herod's hatred. His mother and Joseph are obliged to take him away by night and flee into Egypt. It was only a type and figure of all his experience upon earth. The waves of humiliation began to beat over him, even when he was a nursing child. The Lord Jesus is just the Savior that the suffering and sorrowful need. He knows well what we mean when we tell him in prayer of our troubles. He can sympathize with us when we cry to him under cruel persecution. Let us keep nothing back from him. Let us make him our bosom friend. Let us pour out our hearts before him. He has had great experience of affliction. Observe how death can remove the kings of this world like other men. The rulers of millions have no power to retain life when the hour of their departure comes. The murderer of helpless infants must himself die. Joseph and Mary hear the tidings that Herod is dead, and at once they return in safety to their own land. True Christians should never be greatly moved by the persecution of man. Their enemies may be strong and they may be weak, but still they ought not to be afraid. They should remember that the triumphing of the wicked is but short. What has become of the Pharaohs and Neros and Diocletians who at once time fiercely persecuted the people of God? They did their utmost to cast the truth down to the ground. But the truth rose again from the earth and still lives. And they are dead and moldering 
in the grave. Let not the heart of any believer fail. Death is a mighty leveler and can take any mountain out of the way of Christ's church. The Lord lives forever. His enemies are only men. The truth shall always prevail. Observe in the last place what a lesson of humility is taught by the dwelling place of the Son of God when he was on earth. He dwelt with his mother and Joseph in a city called Nazareth. Nazareth was a small town in Galilee. It was an obscure, retired place, not so much as once mentioned in the Old Testament. Hebron and Shiloh and Gibeon and Bethel were far more important places, but the Lord Jesus passed by them all and chose Nazareth. This was humility. In Nazareth, the Lord Jesus lived 30 years. It was there he grew up from infancy to childhood and from childhood to boyhood and from boyhood to youth and from youth to man's estate. We know little of the manner in which those 30 years were spent, that he was subject to Mary and Joseph, we are expressly told. That he worked in the carpenter's shop with Joseph is highly probable. We only know that almost five-sixths of the time the Savior of the world was on earth was passed among the poor of this world and passed in complete retirement. Truly, this was humility. Let us learn from our Saviour's example. We are far too ready to seek great things in this world. Let us seek them not. To have a place and a title and a position in society is not nearly so important as people think. It is a great sin to be covetous and worldly and proud and carnal-minded, but it is no sin to be poor. It matters not so much where we live as what we are in the sight of God. Where are we going when we die? Shall we live forever in heaven? These are the main things to which we should attend. Above all, let us daily strive to copy our Saviour's humility. Pride is the oldest and commonest of sins. Humility is the rarest and most beautiful of graces. For humility let us labor. For humility let us pray. Our knowledge may be scanty, our faith may be weak, our strength may be small. But if we are disciples of him who lived in Nazareth, let us at any rate be humble. Well, I hope you
you enjoyed those meditations on the Christmas story as much as I enjoyed reading them for you. I have actually recorded the full audiobook of J.C. Ryle's Expositions on the Gospel of Luke, and it's one of my favorite audiobooks. You'll find the link to it below, as well as to my Patreon platform, where you can access close to 1,000 classic and modern audio and video devotionals, as well as some full audiobooks. Please do check it out. Well, I have a few more Christmas shows still to come. I pray they'll be a blessing to you and help you have a truly happy and meaningful Christmas as we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, as we also eagerly look forward to his second coming. God bless you. Bye for now. Thank you.